Excellent. Job well done. Welcome back. We are starting late for a very rare change. Um, Mr. State the Obvious. My mantle of a shalom. I've told the story before. Was the Rosh Hashiva. And he was also the supervisor in the Yeshiva section known as Chevei Teda. Uh, Mantik was an old timer, didn't have a Delaney book. Instead of a Delaney book, he had like a map of all the tables of the Bismedish. And on the map, it showed which Bachram was sitting at which tables. And he would look around and he would see, okay, that table's full. He knew these Bachram were here. That table, this guy here is here, so it means this guy is missing. And that's how he deduced. Um, after a while, this Bacha was missing for two weeks. So the Bacha returned to Yeshiva, where I meant to call him over and said to him, I haven't seen you in two weeks. So the Bacha happened to never miss an actual class. He never missed a Seder. He was always there every day on time, actually. But according to Ramantlik's paperwork, it was two weeks he was missing. So it was back and forth, and Ramantlik said, I have you written down on this tape, on the map, that this and this table, I check every day, you're never there. So he tells Ramantlik, I don't understand how you have me written on this end, if I'm on the total opposite, I sit in the opposite corner. So Ramantlik looked at his map, and looked up, and looked at the map, and looked up again, and said, <laughs> it's upside down. He turned around the map, and I realized, yes, the boy indeed was there every day. Now, um, Mr. State, the obvious, I will confess, for the problem that we're going through for weeks on end with the group calling, for some wonderful reason, I had ten people on the group, and the only that I have nine. So because there were ten people, it wouldn't allow the group call. So nine, you can do So nine. once I put it back to nine now, <laughs> there's no problem making a group call today. Just uh, the wonderful world of technology is so sweet to you. Anyway, Pash um, Ekev. Today was Chof Menachemov. Yesterday was Yates, my mother's Yatzeit, Shalom. Today is also the, tonight, Chof Aleph is a Yatzeit of a Chacham, I don't know his name, Yosef Ben. Yikes, I don't remember who. And I apologize to the family for not being able to remember the name properly. In Russia, former Soviet Union, they were very into math. They knew, they're very, I mean, I remember when I was in Yeshiva yet uh, 40 years ago, and Russian immigrants arrived, the subject that they were really top of the class with always was math. And it was amazing how what they knew in math. And they would laugh at us because in high school we were learning, they were learning in fourth grade. And, uh, I mean, and this anti-Semite once walked into a class in Russia and he says, you Jews, all the Jewish boys, I want to hear you. I'm going to ask you a question. He says, There's a tra- there are seven trains running on nine different tracks. Each train has 16 cars. In each car there are 72 people. 
The trains run four times a day. Now who can tell me how old I am? The whole class was mesmerized. All this question, the question. The little boy stands up in the back and says, you're 48. He says, how did you know I'm 48? You're right, but how did you know? He says, we have a guy in my town. He's a half of Michigan, and he's 24. So, <laughs> you're a full Michigan, and you must be 48. Um, the answer of a little Yiddish akin, the little, little Jewish child. I guess that's how they work things. Um, but as we're talking on the subject of Meshigah already, <laughs> the reason we have warm water anyway yeah, no, ice no ice okay there is ice probably but men use it all there's ice cubes in the freezer it's fine it's fine um, in the world of Shaduchim crisis today the people are going through crises so the uh, Shadchan approached the boy and he says to him, I have a girl for you. Yeah. Uh, you know that I have a very long list of what I like. He says, I know. She fits everything in your, in your list. Her looks, her size, her height, her eye color, her hair color. He says, that's amazing. He says, no, when can I meet her? Well, I want to tell you there's a little problem with her. What's the problem? If everything else fits, I can look over, overlook one problem. It's one problem. It's one little problem. So what's the little problem? The little problem is that one day a year she goes crazy. One day a year she goes crazy. So the guy says, you know something? <laughs> if everything else is perfect, I don't mind if one day a year she goes crazy. I'll pack out of the house. I'll go away for that day. So when can I meet her? So the shotgun says, uh, we have to wait for the day that she becomes crazy. <laughs> She's not ready to meet you that fast. What a language, what a, what a word, of, what a way of wording a Pasuk. Maisha tells the Jews about Ekev Tishmun. Ekev could mean because. It will happen... Rashi jumps to a conclusion. And he says the Benchamash, the Mikra, is not looking at the word Ekev as because, as it will happen. The Benchamash, the Mikra, says to everybody, Oh, an Ekev? I know what an Ekev is. An Ekev is an ankle. You step on an ankle, you walk on your ankle, you heal. The heel, actually. The heel is Ekev. Right? So Mechamesh Mikha says right away, yeah, it's an ekev, it's a heel. What's the... What's Rashi telling us, in my mitzvah's kalis, the simple mitzvah's, sh'adam dash ba'akev of tishmun, that man steps on with a heel. That's the ones you should listen to. So obviously... The Bechamesh, the Mikra, who knows and recognizes the word Ekev, meaning a hill, gets that translation from Rashi. 
Why is the Torah referring to mitzvahs that are a heel? Because they are mitzvahs that, as if we step on them. Another explanation for the word ekev is also acharis. Acharis refers to the future The reward that you will get for doing these mitzvahs will come in the future when Mashiach Kena will come. May it be today. How do these two translations coincide? Or in English, how do they jive? The Moshal, says the Rebbe, is that of a scale, a weighing scale. A weighing scale that has two sides to it. And the person puts on the weighing scale on one side the actual item that he is selling, the gold that he is selling. And then on the other side, we have to see how much gold this is. So he puts a stone on the other side, which is a weight. It's a half a stone, a half a kilo, a kilo, a quarter of a kilo, a pound, two pounds, whatever it might be, whatever country the person's in. And eventually when the scale becomes even, they're even keel, as we say, you know that this gold weighs whatever this stone weighs. The gold, in turn, by the ounce, today is about $900 an ounce. A kilo of gold is a substantial amount. It's not that amount. I'm getting faces. Anybody's dealing in gold lately that finds gold is much cheaper? In London, probably. I don't know. Gold is very high, apparently. Oh, whoops. Okay, I meant to say 900 a half ounce. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> If I'm going to be wrong, let it look like I was wrong only a little. <laughs> Why well, look like a total, <coughs> total ignoramus? Uh, <laughs> apparently it's $1,800 an ounce already. <laughs> so I'm living in the past. But it was fun back then. Anyway, so at a kilo of gold, imagine how much that is. But on the other side of the scale, that stone that weighs a kilo... <laughs> Is a stone. It's a stone that you can buy in the store for $30, for $20, whatever they sell it for. A weight stone. Sometimes even they throw it in with the scale. But yet, we are comparing the two. We are saying that this is the even keel for this other thing. This is the concept of Akev. Akev is the lowest of low. The heel is the lowest of the low. We have to come on to the lowest of the low in order to elevate to the highest of the high. What is the highest of the high? Achris Hayam. When Mashiach will come. This, therefore, is the Lushan of the twofold explanation to the word Akev.
We've found the word Ekev before in the Torah. When it refers to Avraham Avinu, Ekev Asheshama Avraham Bekoili. And the question was, Ekev, wake him up, give me my ISIS. Doesn't want. Doesn't want. He has to fit in a suit for his wedding after me. Akev, 172 years, Avraham listened to the voice of God. Avraham lived to be 175 years of age. But according to one opinion, he was three years old when he recognized God. And therefore, out of the 175 years, Akev, Asheshom Avram Bekoeli, he listened, he lived the way of life with Hashem for 172 years. The Balaturim teaches us there are 172 letters in the Ten Commandments. Which is also Ekev Ashatishmon. The 172, if you listen to the entire of the Ten Commandments. continues on, the parasha continues to tell us mind you we've spoken yet back in the Chumash of Devarim, the beginning of the Chumash of Deuteronomy that Moshe is reprimanding the Jewish nation throughout tells us the Teda Tells us the Teda. Another section here of reprimand. Baruch Mikolamim. But still, Namisha is blessing the Jewish nation. And then he goes on to say a very interesting expression. You were tortured, you were hungered, and you were fed the mon. The truth is, we've said this before. And anyone that sneaks in on Tuesdays or Mondays and listens to the archives has heard me say this before. But I find this a very, very, besides being a beautiful explanation, it's also a very pertinent explanation. There's a medrash pulia. Medrash pulia means a medrash that is shocking. A medrash that we don't understand. The medrash says, from this posik, vayancha vayarivecha, we learn Neres Shabbos Kodesh that one must light the candles for Shabbat 
and complete the Oneg Shabbat, the pleasure of Shabbat. Where does this Pasuk come to match with such a thing? We all know when the Jews ate the mon, the mon tasted like Hatzapichas Bidvash. Whatever the person wanted it to taste like, it tastes like. So if the person wanted rib steak, they ate their mon and they imagined rib steak and they felt it and they tasted rib steak. If they wanted sushi, they tasted sushi. Can you imagine people going 40 years in the desert without sushi? And <laughs> it's not plausible. How could they have survived without sushi? I don't know. In Atlanta, Georgia, they get sushi? Do they get kosher sushi? Alright, well, when you get to New York, okay, you get to New York, I take you to sushi. I won't eat with you, but I'll take you. I will not touch that stuff. Ew! So the question is, if they tasted everything that they wanted to taste, they ate, and they had the, the taste of that food, why were they tortured? Why were they hungry? Tells us the Medrash that yes, when you ate the mun, you tasted what you wanted it to taste like. You tasted your rib steak, but you didn't feel your rib steak. And even worse, you didn't see it on your plate. You didn't cut that rib steak. You didn't go through the motions. Part of eating and enjoying your rib steak is sitting with that succulent piece of meat on your plate. And as you slice it, as you stab it and slice it, you see the juices coming out. And that already is mouth-watering. And if I was in a mood now and want to use enough adjectives, even describing it makes it mouth-watering. But the bottom line, you tasted the rib steak, but you did not see it. You tasted the rib steak, but you did not slice it. And therefore, vayancho, vayarivecho, you were tortured and you were actually hungry. Although you ate the mon, and the mon sustained you. You didn't have your food, you didn't have your carbs. This is what the explanation is of the Medrash. When a person sits down to eat the Sudat Shabbat, the Sudat Shabbat, they have to enjoy it. The karosal Shabbos Oneg. There has to be Oneg Shabbat. Enjoyment and pleasure. <laughs> Sushi tastes like lox. <laughs> in, in, in China or uh, Japan, they would say, you have a, a wong number. 
you come here, they have sushi. Not just locks. They have here every different... You get a sushi platter with uh, anywhere between, I don't know, Hawaiian rolls and this roll and that roll, avocado and tuna and you name it, they put it. One big, large stomach ache. Anyway, and if you got the right soy sauce and the right uh, mayonnaise dip or whatever it's called, you're really a rich man. I shudder listening to thinking about it. Let's get back to the rib steak. It was much more exciting. Anyway, the person sits down for the Shabbat dinner. They have to see their food in order to enjoy it. How would one see their food? By having the Shabbos candles lit. Because the Shabbos candles give the light. There's a machlekes. There's a dispute. Whether or not Shabbos candles should be lit at home or where you eat. Where you, better yet, where you sleep or where you eat. And the reason for having it where you sleep is for Shalom Bayes, for domestic peace, because you don't want to hurt yourself or anything and fall on something, etc. And the reason we have it in that way we're eating is so that we should see what we are eating. Just for the Skype people, I must tell you, there's a two-year-old sitting here by the Shia. And he's having a lot of fun. <laughs> cup, yes. Cup. Now we found a cup. Okay, eat your ices. No, don't Whoops. <laughs> okay. You want water? You want water? And therefore, teaches us is the basis of a karasa, the Shabbos Just to jump to the end of the parsha, in times gone by, they would not teach Torah to girls at all. Nowadays, though. It's not only permissible to teach women, even the deepest parts of Theta, but it's absolutely necessary to do so. Because in today's modern world, as we know, women are no longer confined to the home. They're no longer tied up in the kitchen. And actually, they get very much exposure to the outside world marketplaces, etc., malls. (laughs) (laughs) Say hello to everybody on Skype. No, it's not couple-couple. He's looking for his cousin in Switzerland. Because when he gets to the computer on Say Skype, hi. that's who he looks for. Say hi. I should see you. Say hi. Just in case. 
no high. Here goes the ISIS. Okay. So what would happen is since the girls, the women of today are going to further educations and learning so many other secular things it would be wrong for the girl to know and to be worldly knowledge and not know what they're supposed to know. Because the fact that the world learns even the secrets of Torah, Siddhas, etc., it gives the girl and the woman the tools <laughs> to deal with the modern day world. No, couple couples not online. Couple couple is sleeping. He's in Switzerland. Right now it's the middle of the night there. No, no. Okay, take him. Concert time is elsewhere. Take him out of here. Yeah, we should have a chesidish nigging today. Because it's chafav, right? Okay, take him. Go play. Taylor tells us a little reality check how the person has to be careful perhaps you will lift up your heart we all know the main book of halacha of the laws of which we refer to is the book of Maimonides, the Rambam. The Rambam enumerates the 613 mitzvahs in his book called Sefer HaMitzvahs. The Rambam divides up his six books into the different types of laws, the six volumes, and basically encompasses every law that we come across. In this week's Pasha, Pasha's Akev, there are six positive mitzvahs and two negative, two prohibitions. One of the prohibitions. Wow. Take a picture. Say smile. Say cheese. One is not to derive benefit from the ornaments on an idol. Come on! Listen to me. <laughs> Another is not to possess an object of idol worship to derive benefit from it. When the Torah warns us about one's raising one's heart up, about becoming overly proud 
or entering to a level which is called in Hebrew a Balgava, person that has a slight more pride than they should. It's a concern of the Tatas, but it's not a love. It's not a prohibition according to the Rambam. And the Rambam enumerates the mitzvahs that we may not do. This is not one of the lavim. The Smag, who was a commentary on the Rambam, asks just that question. Why is Gaida, why is haughtiness not an actual prohibition in the Teda? And the truth is, Gaiva is more severe than any prohibition of the Torah. Any other prohibition that a person does, any other sin that a person commits, God forbid, God says, I am Hashem and Itam Besech to Muslim. I rest among them even when they are impure. God is a forgiving God. And therefore, no matter what the sin may be, God has room for His place in His heart for the person. Masha'enkin, when it comes to Gaiva, when it comes to holiness, God says specifically, Ein ani v'hu yechelim. He and I cannot coexist. The person that comes with haughtiness, he and I cannot coexist. In that case, Adrab, so much more so, it should become a prohibition in the Torah. How is it that this is not counted one of the prohibitions. But rather the Taylor tells us Taylor tells us that in essence it's already mentioned elsewhere. Where is it mentioned elsewhere? Gaiva is on the same level as idol worship, Rahman al And since it's like idol worship, therefore when we refer to the sin of Gaiva, when we refer to the terrible prohibition where the Torah tells us is Perhaps if you should watch yourself pen tishkach. Perhaps you will forget Hashem alekecha, God your God. Vidom levavecha, you will lift up, lift up your heart, and you will forget Him. A person not just doing a sin. A person 
that is becoming a Baljaiva, is becoming Hori, is turning away God. He's turning away God with an, to an extent that God says, He and I cannot coexist, we cannot live together. Therefore, the Torah does not, the Rambam does not have to tell us that Gaiva, Viram Levavecha, is a prohibition of the Torah. But rather, it falls under the same category as literally serving, God forbid, idol worship. We know that when Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, sinned by the Chet Sadas, the serpent was punished. How is the serpent punished? That he will have to eat from dirt on the ground. Another punishment is he will never be able to look up. He only looks down. This, therefore, is the same essence thing. When the person is a haughty person, they walk with their head up in the air. I was a little boy who we were taught that by looking with your head up in the air, you're pushing with your nose, you're pushing God away. A person shouldn't walk with his head up. A person should walk humbled. Is the reason you, you, we wear yarmulkes? Another reason that we wear yarmulkes to remind us that there's a God above us. This, therefore, the idea, the concept of the snake being having its food, the dirt or the ground, in essence, is a blessing, because the snake is able to eat at all times. Snake never has a problem finding its food. And the marshal that the Medish tells us is a father that was very wealthy and he called in his child, his only child and said to him here this is enough money to keep you for your entire life, I don't want to see you ever again the child is being tossed out, even though he's being supported for all his life but he's being put, put out on the street He never, the father never wants to see him again Zemoshal as well with a king. Parable of a king that used to give his son once a month stipend. Actually, it was once a year. He used to give him a stipend. And this he was able to live for a year off it. And once a year, the prince came to the king. And the king realized that he misses his son and wants to see him more often. So he changed the schedule to every day.
and gave him every day just enough to live that day so that he could have the pleasure of seeing his child every day I want to go off to Chof Av and also this Shabbos Shabbos Mevarchem HaChedish it's the Shabbos that we're going to bench HaShchedish HaShchedish will be next Shabbos and Sunday all those listening any women that want to join us Thursday night we have the group going Erev HaShchedish we go every Erev HaShchedish the group of women 7.30 we'll be meeting at the Ohel Yetz Hashem Anybody that wants to send along letters, you're welcome to email them over. And we'll talk maybe another next week about the month of El, the acronyms, etc. For right now, I want to turn to Chaf Menachem Av, the 20th day of the month of Av, the day of the passing, Rebbe Yitzchok Schneerson, Rebbe as he was known, the father of our revered Rebbe. On the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's father's birthday was actually Yud Ches Nissen, the 18th day of Nissen, Chalamoyed Pesach. And one year, I don't remember the reason for it, or if we know the reason for it even. The Rebbe spoke on that day in Shul, and the address that he spoke about, he told the story of his father. His father was very prestigious. He was the Rav in a city called Yakatrinislav, or the Nepe Petrovsk. And he was very prestigious because the government showed him great respect, but yet couldn't imagine that a Jew was getting so much respect. And the Rebbe told the story, and the Rebbe told the entire Sikha in Russian. The Rebbe spoke for about 10-15 minutes straight in Russian. This has happened other times as well, where the Rebbe addressed the assemblage in Russian. The Rebbe spoke once on Lag to the children by the parade, also in Russian. And that was because we knew the Rebbe had a message for the Russian government at the time and didn't want it to be watered down or distorted and knew that they were listening to what he had to say and he wanted to make sure the message came across right. The Rebbe spoke about his father, the story of the fa- his father with the wheat. Wheat was not of an abundance in Russia at the time. And Reblevik was in charge of the wheat, but so much so, being the rabbi, the chief rabbi, whatever his status was, most importantly, Reblevik wants to see to it that the wheat remains kasha for Passover should not be a problem with the Pesach and so Reb Levick 
had an issue with the government because by making sure that it was kosher it limited the amount of production limited, limiting the amount of production was causing the shortage to be that much more severe it was the ninth day in the month of Nisan 1939 at 3am it was Wednesday morning and they were banging the door down by the Levick's house we all know that his father was David Yitzhak and his mother was Hannah. Four officers barged into the house and started turning the house up and down, upside down. Look what they would want, whatever they wanted to search, they did not find anything that would incriminate Rebbeinu. Three hours later, though. They turned, they said, Rebbeinu, you're coming with us. Now, Rebbeinu had faced trials before. Whenever he was brought on trial for, quote-unquote, the conspiracies against Russia, being an open trial, he had no problem. But now, all of a sudden, they weren't giving him an open trial. This was going to be a private, quote-unquote, interview. And Blavik knew there was trouble. And as the ninth of Nisan, as we said before, Blavik asked him, can I take along some matzah with me? And at the time that he got arrested, he was the Rebetzin Khana, his wife, was told that she could take, she could bring him food as soon as he settles in, in the morning. But a few hours later, when she came to the prison with a package, there was a lot of hassle, and they told her that he was not in the prison. She thought, God forbid, they killed him. She didn't know what to think. And each time she came, they refused to let him see her. Let her see him. For five months, Rebbe Sinchana was chasing and chasing. It came to the month of El. And they told her that she could bring him a care package. Two months later, in the month of Cheshvan, a non-Jew came to visit Rebbe Zinchana and told her that he just got out of prison. He was together with Rebbe Levik in prison. He described Rahman al-Islam, the tortures Rebbe Levik was going through. He had promised Rebbe Levik that he would tell everything that went on and he said that from the, he was transferred immediately from Yakatrinislav to Kiev 
And when she asked, what was he accused of? That he was arrested? He said he did not know. He just said who was that informed to the Enkivideh, who was a, a, I guess, grandfather, a father of KBG, KGB. The acquisition apparently was something about money that he had raised for poor people, and they said it was for the revolution. When it came to trial, the um, person that gave over the information, the informer, refused to to, to uh, give testimony. But it didn't help. Even though still they had no evidence, there were still no questions. They gave him five years. They were sending him to the small village in the eastern part of Asia, in Kazakhstan. The main idea, objective, they wanted him away from Jews. He was too inspirational. He encouraged Jews. He gave them religion. He gave them strength. And they needed their people to be oppressed. Ebed Khan, in the meantime, was relentless, petitioning and writing and humanitarian reasons, because Levik was an old and weak man already. And they promised they would do whatever they could for him. A month later already, Hanukkah time, <coughs> she was called to the KGB offices. <coughs> the next Monday morning, she was excited <coughs> she went to the headquarters maybe she'll meet her husband there to her distress they said no you cannot meet him here they were very angry at her if anything and they told her of his sentence <coughs> she in, the commuting his sentence and they were taking him five years to Kazakhstan and he requested they bring Talas Twilin Gartel Chumash Tilim and Tanya. When she finally saw her husband, when she finally saw her husband, eight months later, he was a shell. Shell? A shell, like a skeleton of what he was. And Levik told her, Baruch Hashem, we're meeting. A few weeks later, she got a postcard from her husband that he was taken to Kharkov. Kharkov from Kiev is uh, today, I think, about four hours. Immediately, she got a train ticket. She went to Kharkov. She bought some food, kosher food. And finally, she convinced the officials to let her deliver it personally. She reached Kharkov. She met with her husband in prison. He was deteriorating rapidly. 
Needless to say, he was very happy to see her. The very next day, he was sent off to his exile. She thanked God gave him food for the journey. The journey, because of the snow and everything else, to Almata, took over 12 hours. The entire time, the oppression was over him. But Almata was too big of a city. There were Jews in Almata. And they couldn't have him deal with Jews. So they sent him further east to a place called Kili. So the world ends and you fall off after. Christopher Columbus didn't try going there. Yeah. He destroyed. Since he already had commuted one year of prison of term, he had to be here now for four years. He had to find his own provisions, his own room. Just be in this city. You can't leave the city. There was not a Jew in sight. But people made it their business to catch up and find and to help him out. Every ten days he had to report to the local enkiva their office and walking back and forth was not a treat empty fields etc scorching suns freezing winters on Shabbos when he had to report and bring papers he had a guy bring it Mashenke when he was in prison there was one point his wife was told every 10 days she could bring him food so it obviously it turned out one time on Shabbos. So she brought it with a guy. She had a guy carry it, a non-Jew. I believe he refused to use it. It was brought by a guy, he refused to use it. After, <coughs> after Purim, Rebbe Tzinchana traveled and joined Rebbe for the Pesach Seder. She brought along some Sfarim. Five months later, they decided that Ibn Zulkhan is better off back in their Katrina's love. We can get kosher food, etc. And she traveled back to Yakatrina's love. And she returned the next Pesach. Returning the next Pesach, then she already stayed for the rest of the term with him. In the interim, the general Kazakhstanin found out that they had a Blavik in their midst even though he wasn't local. But they used him as rabbi, shilas, encouragement. Everything they needed, they used to go to him. Ebzakana arrived before the next Pesach. Ebzakana in Kazakhstan, in, in Khili, used to make her own homemade ink so that her husband could write in the margins of the Svarim that he was learning his explanations. The four years went, finally, finally went by. But they couldn't return to Yakutrinislav because World War II had broken out. Because the country was at war, they said he could not return. 
obviously this devastated Levik. Heschel and Mendler Rabinovich, who were supporters of Levik, were great help. And they needed to get him out of the imprisonment. They needed four things. They needed a document stating that he served his term. They needed someone to deliver the documents personally to Reb Levik, so he'd have the document in his hand. But that was a dangerous job because if somebody gets caught with documents that not, don't say his name on it, they can be killed on the spot. Then they have to get permission from the commander of the local anchor of their office to allow the prisoner to leave the city of exile. And then they, of course, needed a lot of money for bribes, still. And all this had to be done before the government of Chile would get the official directive to let this man go. Immediately after Pesach, Levik and his wife, Nebuchadnezzar, packed up, and they traveled secretly to Almata. That Shabbos, Levik spoke in Almata in the shul, first time in five years, that he was able to share his Torah thoughts with people. Obviously it was a very warm reception. Before Shavuos they rented a home for him in Almata. They now appreciated the new rabbi. But at this point he was such a broken vessel. He was so sickly he wasn't really able to function fully. He didn't want to burden the community. Only the Rebetzin was able to look after him. The summer went by, and obviously Rebbe's condition got worse. And as it came towards the end of the summer, to the 19th day of Av, the people were standing around his bed, and that night, the eve of 20th of Av, Reb Zulchana saw there were enough people there, so she went to sleep. And a half hour later, she heard them starting to cry, to cry out and to scream, and she realized that Levik had passed on. Herschel Rabinovitz, who was standing there, said that throughout the time, even though in his comatose state and Levik's lips were moving constantly he was saying something and he bent over to hear what Levik was saying and he heard him saying your footsteps are not known and then finally he said, Oi, as his last words, Ikvis Meshicha, the footsteps of Mashiach. And this is therefore represented tonight, the Chaf Av, the eve of Chaf Av, excuse me, we're already the night after Chaf Av now, but Chaf Av represented to us, and will represent for us this week, this Shabbos, 
as we'd say the Mavarchim Achidish, and we bless a new month, we will bless a new era, and as Akev 172 is a number that ultimately milestoned and marked off different parts and different things in the Jewish life. Each thing started a new era. There were three eras. One era was years without Torah in the world. One was with Torah in the world. And the third is the era of Mashiach, which was 172 years after the destruction of the Besamidash. Ekev Shana, 172 years. And therefore we are now in the era of Mashiach, the last Shlav, the last section. We have to daven achakalei b'choyim shiyavai. And this very Shabbos, before we start to read Minchas reading of Re'ei, see Anechi, to see me, we will already see the Eivishter in Yerushalayim and Akedash and the Beis Hamikdash Hashlishi and Harabayim. Shabbat Shalom.